Revelation in chapter 2, and we're going to look forth, and I'm going to read beginning at verse 18 of Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have Hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, and as I also have received authority from my Father. And I give him the morning star, you as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Long ago, the legend is probably a mixture of a little myth and true history. On the fields in Western Asia Minor and around the, outside this ancient city of Troy, a great battle took place, actually a 10-year war on the plains of Troy. Actually, Beth and I stood and looked out over there and just tried to use our imagination to think back upon that, that story that has worked its way into legend. Paris, who was the son of the king of Troy, he was taken by the beauty of the wife of Menelaus, who was the king of Sparta across the water, the Greeks, and Paris, who stole his wife. Was not a good decision in the long run or in the short run. <laughs> that what then began to ensue was what was a 10-year war. And 
and a climactic moment of that 10-year war, a Greek hero by the name of Ulysses, he promoted the idea that building a huge wooden horse, and it would be a hollow horse, and it would be presented to the city of Troy as a gift for the goddess Athena. Well, as the Greeks presented this huge hollow horse, it was outside the city. It was seeming too big to get into the city. One man, and this is where some legend, I'm sure, works its way in at, one man who was supposed to have been some sort of a seer or a visionary of a kind of a man, he said that they should not touch nor receive that horse. And it was poison. And at this time, then, a great sea serpent came up and took him and his two sons in a way. And... Troy, the citizens of Troy decided, determined that this was an omen from the gods, that they had been angered, that they had not received the gift. So upon the urging of a Greek prisoner in the city, he told them that this would be the thing to do to receive this great horse. And so the city listened to this Greek prisoner and... They accommodated them. Meanwhile, which I'd left out, the Greek army had boarded their ships and had seemingly sailed away and left this giant horse. Well, they bring the horse into the city at some effort to get it in, and they do. But during the night, this Greek prisoner went to the horse. This is all prearranged. And he opened a trap door in the horse. And there were these Greek soldiers who were inside the horse. And they came out and they opened the doors of the city, the gates of the city. Meanwhile, the armada of ships seemingly sailing away had turned around and had come back. And so the horse containing enough of these Greek soldiers to uh, open the gates And the rest was history. The city was destroyed. The Greeks won. And uh, Helen was rescued finally. So is the story of the Trojan horse. Now you know what a horse with wheels is all about. What we want to consider tonight is by this title, The Church That Tolerated Jezebel is the danger of a horse with wheels. What is that? Let's walk through three issues here up front that will help us to get our get some traction, some footing, understanding as to what we're dealing with in this letter to the church at Thyatira. The first is a statement to simply establish a very important principle The church of Jesus Christ must always be alert to the danger of subversion, subversion from within 
by those who, be, who pretend, claim to be teachers of the Bible. You know, Paul warned of this, didn't he, when he spoke to the Ephesians and as he was getting ready to leave. And he told them that there will come up in their midst wolves in sheep's clothing rising from within. So, sadly, not everyone who preaches or teaches the Bible is being true to the message of the Bible. And error is often, if you have any experience with the history of the church, any knowledge of church history, you see how often error is smuggled into the church through self-appointed teachers who use their own self-styled hermeneutics. They twist the scriptures to make the scriptures fit their own agenda. I've had correspondence with people who do that very thing and to, to d- discuss, well, hermeneutics. Is it simply a subjective thing? Is it up to the whim of the mind of the interpreter in coming to meaning and the meaning of, of the text of Scripture? Some would have people to believe that and are able to twist the Scriptures and deceive. Let's say a few things about the church at Thyatira. And... We would have, I think, is a map next on this? Uh, ah, there it is. All right. Located, you see Thyatira. Thyatira, the word, if you're interested, is from two words, thuos, which means sacrifice, and ateres. Ateres means um, unweary. So literally, the city means unweary of sacrifices. That tells us a little bit about the spiritual um, condition of this particular city. But it was the church at Thyatira was a church that was contaminated by a tolerant attitude toward immorality. Uh, just a few factors about it. It's 40 miles for those who like to calculate the distances between these churches. Uh, it's a 40 miles southeast of Pergamum on a valley road. It's located in a very rich agricultural area. We've driven through that, we, Beth and I, and some friends. And it's a very rich agricultural area. Some of the best food I've ever had in travel, and foreign travel, we had in places there in western Turkey. Like Greek food, very good. It was a commercial center. It was known for its dye industry. It was a city which was known for its purple cloth, dyed cloth and garment exports. Now, you know someone who was from this city. If you know the book of Acts in Acts 16, Lydia. And she was a seller of purple, this cloth for which the city was well known. Acts 16, verse 14. But when we meet her in Acts, she's in Philippi. We're about 200 miles west of the city of Thyatira. But she must have been, I think, a wealthy woman and who was skilled in in this commercial trade. And this is, I think, a very important aspect of this uh, garment industry, the purple cloth industry in Thyatira. Trade guilds, what we might call unions, trade guilds, had a very influential uh, role in social life in the city of Thyatira, as they did throughout the, the ancient world. And there would be these pagan 
rituals, periodic rituals. One writer's put it this way. It was difficult abstaining from the guild festivities without losing one's business and social acceptance. There were guilds for wool workers, linen workers, manufacturers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. And all had their own trade guild or guilds. And membership in these trade guilds was compulsory if you wanted to hold any position and if you wanted uh, some reasonable opportunity for good income. And each of these trade unions had its own patron deity. Uh, we might say condescendingly a mascot, but they looked upon these these deities as the real deal. At least they played like it. They had feasts. They had seasonal festivities which included sexual revelries. So it was quite attractive. And on top of it, it was presented as necessary. It would work something like this, that one who would be a member of one of these trade guilds would receive an invitation. I'll explain this a little bit more later, to come to a meal at the temple for your trade guild, and you would be expected to be there and enter into all the festivities. All right, we're going to come back to that because that does seem to play into this, in a part in this city, in the church in Thyatira. I want to, on my third statement here of introduction, I'm looking at the opening verse. You remember I alerted you to the fact that when you look at these churches, the opening description of the Lord Jesus Christ is always, in every case, he is presented as appropriate to, suitable for that church. That is, the description is. You see, it is said, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. Let's linger over it a minute. Why is he presenting himself? Why is this his calling card here? Three things. First of all, authority. The Son of God. Only time in the book of Revelation where he, Lord Jesus Christ, is goes by that title. Full authority. The God-man. And then he has eyes like a flame of fire. Discernment. We have the saying, can look right through you. So his eyes, penetrating knowledge, searching, nothing hidden. I think that plays against off, off against the idea that there are no secret sins when it comes to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ about us and about a church. No secret sins. He sees it with scrutinizing gaze. And then thirdly, judgment. Authority, discernment, judgment. See how they, they do fit in what we're going to see. Feet like burnished bronze, the procedure for, for of judgment. I think it speaks of, of that, though I know some interpret it to mean who he, the Lord Jesus Christ, had walked through the fires of testing and trials and had successfully met those trials and testing. And therefore, 
is because this all judgment has been given into his hands. And this is said of Jesus in John chapter 5, that he has judgment as a prerogative by virtue of his, his office, his work, and in redemption. This imagery, by the way, is drawn from Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. And what we're also going to find in this picture, the story about Jezebel, is that Old Testament story of Ahab and Jezebel. But I'll talk a little bit more about her in a while. So here it is. There is this setup of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Thyatira. Now, I'm going to break the movement of thought down into what, one, two, three, four different movements, three movements, I think, take us through this letter, this word to the church. The first is this. According to verse 19, where it says, I know your deeds, and you'll notice they're enumerated deeds, love, faith, service, perseverance, and that your deeds are of later greater than the first. So we have a total of what? One, two, three, five, six of these. What's going on here? Why does he begin this way? Let me state the truth. You'll see a principle that's embedded in this. It's a very important biblical principle. But here's the truth. That Jesus Christ commends the church that grows in its service and faithfulness. He begins there. Commends them. In the, you can measure the vitality of a church by the works that it's producing. What are people, how are people serving one another? We say the whole one anothering motif in the New Testament epistles. You know that, don't you? All the one anothering, the deeds that were being done. And it's the church is to be a place where there is sacrificial one anothering taking place. And we are meeting on, we've had two meetings, the discipleship. What's it called? Work group. I forgot the exact title, but in the vision 2020, we met today after Sunday school. And our task is to do some goal setting, action items to implement the goals for discipleship in this church in Baraka. And we're looking for those features and characteristics that would uh, tell us how this is part of what we're doing that here is a church hopefully we're a church that we are and we want to do better at demonstrating these deeds of which the Lord Jesus Christ here commends highly it's important now you'll notice that um, he enumerates some things for which they were known I I won't labor over these, but let's look at them in order. He says, first of all, your deeds, your love would be that sacrificial work, thought, and relationship in which you engage where you're doing things for the good of others. And then he says faith. This is where you're taking the directives, the commands of God, and you're acting upon them. You believe what he has said. And then there is service. So you are looking out for one another. There would be, I think, tucked into that hospitality, compassion, generosity, those kinds of things. And perseverance. I love this word perseverance. The verb is hupomone, hupomuno, and is hupomone in the noun. 
Um, very interesting word. When I remember coming on this word many years ago and noticing how often it would come up in the New Testament. I can cut to the chase on it. That it means that that um, joyful endurance through difficulties where you are, your difficulties are driving your roots deeper into God. It's that kind of, so it's not just grin and bear. It's not a grimness. It's a joyful, triumphant kind of, of uh, experience in go, going through difficulties. And interestingly, it's used, I'll, I'll just give you a little brief profile of this word in the book of Revelation. For example, it's used in chapter 1, verse 9, it's used of Christ. And in chapter 2, the church at Ephesus, chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3, it's used of the church of Philadelphia in chapter 3 and verse 10. And in chapter 13 and verse 10, it's used to characterize the saints of God who live by the truth of God's sovereign control over evil and the fulfillment of his purposes. And along that same line in chapter 14 and verse 12. All right, let's add this, and then we'll move to where the Lord comes to some, uh, identifies the problem. Is that the Lord of the church is pleased when a church is expanding in its ministry for the gospel's sake. I got to think that this move we have, this vision 2020, I am so pleased with just my experience in the part we have, our assignment and discipleship. I was exhilarated <clears throat> with uh, the meeting. I look around, there were about the table t- today, which is our second meeting. And there were about eight folks in there. I think at least three or four had gone up to the CCEF conference. So there was some fresh uh, thinking and some enthusiasm for the work of discipleship, the side-by-side conference. And so there we're thinking of ways and how we can how we can be more proactive and energetic and creative in our work of discipling and bringing along one another in the faith. That's a good thing. So, while we can measure the success and effectiveness of a church by numerical growth to some extent, there ought to be progress, though, in the way in which the church is carrying out its biblical responsibilities. It is possible that you could have numerical growth, but be deficient in biblical responsibilities. That would not obviously be the ideal. If you can have both, you would thank God for his grace and his blessing. There is what I want to say about that opening commendation, but let's look now at verses 20 through 23. What's the problem with this church? I'll summarize it this way, that the Jesus Christ rebukes the church that tolerates immorality in the name of Christianity. Get that. In the name of Christianity. This is where it gets very dicey and quite eye-opening. Watching. There was a notable woman in this church at Thyatira, and she's identified by the, what I would say, the code name Jezebel. I don't think this was her real name. I mean, I, would parents say, you know, we, isn't she a sweet looking little thing? Let's call her Jezebel. <laughs> With some, some knowledge of the Old Testament, that just doesn't fit. And 
Who is Jezebel? Let me give you a little brief profile and um, uh, resume of Jezebel. She was the daughter of a king named Ethbaal. He was the king of Sidon. He was a priest of Astarte. Who murdered his predecessor, Thales, in order to seize the throne. His daughter, Jezebel, married Ahab, king of Israel. She was a domineering type, to say the least. She tried to exterminate the prophets of the Lord in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 13. She tried to introduce the worship of Astarte, which was a fertility religion under the guise of a, a female goddess. She was a persecutor, a murderess, a thief, and a liar, a hypocrite. Not exactly like the girl you want to bring home uh, in marriage. She wanted to add the worship of Baal to the worship of to, to the worship of God, to try to marry the two. This is syncretism on steroids, where you get these contradictory elements and theologies, and you're trying to blend them. She was an ecumenist, a pluralist. I would say she was a theological witch, but she had some influence. So the name Jezebel became really an appropriate one for this woman, whoever she was. And she's not mentioned my name, I think probably by design, that she doesn't, well, he doesn't want to give her any more celebrity ship than what she deserves. Well, what about this woman? What did she do? And how in the world was she able to develop in this church at Thyatira a system that tolerated immorality and yet do it all in the name of God and in the name of good. Under her influence, pagan practices and idolatry were smuggled into the church. Now, you got to wonder a little bit up front here, why does this happen and how do churches get into messes like this? I mean, it, it, wouldn't it, shouldn't it just be obvious that here is what God's word is and here is standards, his moral standards, and yet you end up getting people persuaded, seduced into the idea that you could have immorality in the context of, shall we call it, discipleship. That's pretty bad. <laughs> How could you get this? I'll tell you one thing, <clears throat> there, there are different doors through which such error can come. One is, and it's what we ought to be really, it's a place where by this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. So love can become a kind of a bait and switch sort of thing. You use the word, we're, we accept, we trust, we help, we hug. We, we befriend, we, all of these things. This, a church should demonstrate genuine love, shouldn't we? And yet, um, what can happen is that love can end up being contrary. And that our definition can become contrary what the Bible says about love. Because love loves the truth, doesn't it? It rejoices in the truth. According to Paul, 1 Corinthians 13. And so 
What then can make love difficult for some is that some may recoil at the idea of confrontation. Confronting, rebuking, resisting. Some people don't have that in their uh, knowledge of what real love is. So let me walk you through what I think is going on here. This self-proclaimed prophetess, this theological witch, she claimed to have received revelations from God, visions, dreams. That's, that's a hook for some. She must have been very articulate and influential, obviously, I would say. She had devised a belief system broad enough to include Christian and pagan teaching. She offered prosperity at the price of compromise with heathendom. The church in Thyatira had tolerated and permitted this to go on. You know, the church at Pergamum had such an evil as this, and they condoned it. So she was leading the church astray by her false teaching. Violation, well, what was she doing? Teaching in the first place. She may certainly bring up First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, teaching men. I don't think this was just a woman's movement here. Interesting in that what it says of her that she led astray the word deceive. The Greek word there is planao. Has an interesting, uh, has some interesting features, this word planao. Our word planet comes from this, the idea of a wanderer in the, which we know they have orbits around the sun, but ancient eyes saw them as wanderers in the solar system. And it occurs with more frequency in Revelation than any other book in the New Testament. Also in 1 John. It occurs eight times. Let me just give you a quick rundown on it. This Jezebel was leading God's people away from the truth. They were straying. It's the way it's used, the way the word's used here with her. Planao is used of Satan. Chapter 12, verse 9, 13, 14, 19, 20. And it's used of the, of the, the nations, 20 in verse 3 and 8 and 10. So it is the word to describe that movement away from, or can I put it this way, out of the orbit. Now, really stretch the metaphor. The true orbit around the Son of God is revealed, as truth is revealed, to a movement away from. In 1 John 1, 8, we're told that we can deceive ourselves and are warned not to be deceived. 1 John 2 and 26 and 3 and 7. So there it is. And there was great pressure. Now let's combine this with something. You see, she's working on some people in the church. She's articulate. She's influential. She's able to communicate. She mixes in some biblical truth, love, prosperity, and such, and relationships, and all of this, because she's being trusted, being trusted, and you're in a trade guild. You're in a trade guild, and you get an invitation. Yeah, I've worked up one you might get if you were living at that time. You're invited to the din- to dinner with the United Garment Workers in purple cloth on Monday the 1st at 6 o'clock. That's your invitation. This is no benign union meeting, shop meeting. It'd be very dangerous. 
Now, let me move to the second statement here, or the third movement in this point of the rebuke of the Lord, namely that Jesus Christ highly values purity. Get this. We want to see this purity in contrast to this impurity, immorality, that Jesus Christ highly values purity in his church and will move to discipline the church that refuses to repent. Verses 21 to 23. Look at his language here. We've read it once, but let's just pick up some parts of it again. And I gave her time to repent. Interesting. He didn't come in immediately. He gave her room. His goodness, the goodness of the Lord's, is designed to lead to repentance. And she does not want to repent of her immorality. Let me say a few things with regard to, with regard to discipline. The Lord of the church inflicts discipline. How does he do it? He will do it by means of pain and or death. Now, she and her followers will be turned over to the full consequences of their false teaching. This is one way in which the Lord judges. He judges unbelief this way, doesn't he? Romans chapter 1. So both both the problems and misery which idolatry brings into one's life, such as physical illness, the sickbed. You see where he says he's going to throw her and her followers into the same bed, the same triclinium, where they were reclining to eat their meals at these guild feasts, these trade union feasts. So it's a playing on the, the picture of what they would do in their immoralities, and the Lord's going to, You want to go to bed? You're going to bed. And it's with illness. And though it's not stated, but I think we may say that, you know, there are all the STDs that come as one consequence of immoral living, as well as a myriad of other things, just a whole banquet of consequences. There is also, though, the judgment seat of Christ, which at the time all believers are going to give an account to the Lord. The believer, according to what I'm reading here, is that the believer is giving time to judge himself lest he be judged. We can be thankful for that if there has been in our own lives where there has been some tolerance of some sin. It may not be immorality, but some other kind, perhaps some some grudge, some envy, some jealousy, some bitterness, some covetousness, and we're nursing it along. And thank God for his mercy and grace. He doesn't just take us out and discipline us right on the spot, but gives us time to come and to repent. And then this as well. Those in the church who refuse to be seduced by false teaching are encouraged to do what? To continue in the life of simple obedience to Christ. See verses 24 and 25. Not everybody in the church has succumbed. How did this happen? Like, and I want to drill a little more deeply on that. It mentions here the deep things of Satan. What would that be? Well, here's, I think, uh, uh, I'll give you a possible scenario. Doctrinal error easily disguises itself, or does disguise itself as deep intellectual thought. There are some, now, I know there are other ways in which doctrinal error can come into a church. 
If you, you get emotion. Some people are more given to emotion. So it's all about feeling. But there are those people who are looking for some inside track on knowledge. They want to be, they want to be privy to some information that others don't have. And it will make its appearance in so-called revelational knowledge. Breakthroughs. Insights. Oh, there is a lot of doctrinal error that's sold in books and over through TV preachers. And they can write books and they can just get you, wrap themselves around your heart or your mind with something that just may just click with you or the person. Or as, as so devious as it is, it can, you can find in the subtlety and deceitfulness of the sinful heart, a loophole, a loophole. Like, I can have my immorality and Jesus too. Gnosticism, which was not fully grown and developed by this time in the first century, the last decade of the first century, but it was coming on. Gnosticism, from the Greek word gnosis, meant the knowers. And Gnosticism was a strong force for evil in the first centuries of the church. And it would be coming into a, a system of uh, knowledge, knowing certain things, and you would get this circle of trust, and you would be privy to this knowledge, and nobody else would. So you felt like, hey, I'm in the in-group. But what does Jesus do? He calls his church not to the so-called deep things of Satan, but what? The burden of truth is sufficient for the moment. And Jezebel, she had convinced her followers of this. This, this is so perverted, so deceptive, deceptive, but can be very effective. She had convinced her followers that they were stronger Christians. <laughs> really? That they could indulge in the pagan feast and even participate in the sexual activity at the temple worship. And not sin in doing so. Ah, so it happened. And so these enlightened, liberated believers, they looked upon others in the church as being weak and less enlightened. Just a bunch of fundamentalists. You know, that can play with that word. And I've heard it done. I've heard it done. Yeah, you fundamentalists. Uh, not enough fun, too much damn, and no mental. Yeah, condescending. We're, we know more than you. And in the process, their church has, it's, they welcome the inclusive and diversity is cherished and embraced. And all people are welcomed here. Oh, that's another hook. Modern hook. And of course, as Christians, we recoil at the fact that, wouldn't we, that we're not a welcoming church. Do. So to be a welcoming church is something that can play to our strength, but at also at the same time, it can be a weakness. It can be a door through which a Trojan horse can come. So these, these Jezebelites, 
could delve into the deep things of Satan and remain unharmed. Nice arrangement, isn't it? Yeah, what a deal. After all, they reason, there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. Okay, are we good? No idols, not to worry. And we can we can explore Satan's strongholds and gain valuable insight into his workings. Oh, yes. Why didn't I think of that? Hmm. I, I came across, I have a pastor friend who wrote something on this. I thought he put it in a really good way here. Uh, and how, how could they take something that's condemned in Scripture and how they could be, make it something virtuous? And he wrote this scenario. This, I'll, I'll give, I think it helps. You people are not nearly strong enough in your faith. Instead of worrying about how Satan might attack you, you need to attack him. You need to enter into his strongholds and understand how he works. After all, doesn't an army send spies and scouts out in front of the troops to gather intelligence? You can only confront Satan if you know by experience all of his advantages. You have to really be experienced in satanic practices to truly understand satanic techniques. You need to be schooled in the deep things of Satan in order to oppose him. Wow. Appeal to the flesh. See what you're doing. But it's in the name of God. It's in the name of good. It happens. Now, same thing can happen today. And I'm I don't have time to fully develop this, but I'll let me just give you some possibilities. Christians will follow those who will tell them that they need more than what they have. Many a Christian has been snookered on that. Oh, I saw this happen in the early days of this church. I just I can't be I just have to flatten it. I can remember one occasion when a couple, they got into this, they saw this television evangelist and went to a conference. They came back and suddenly this church was not a good place. That it didn't meet their needs. And what they had heard from this evangelist, so-called, and that teaching met their needs. It was over. They were gone. How easily it happens. Takes them away from the scriptures into some deeper meaning. All the cults work this way. Actually, you think about it. Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, these groups are parasites. Mormons. Theological liberalism. Roman Catholicism. Which will come with the veneer, the appearance of the sound. They'll talk about the gospel. Talk about love. They'll talk about the atonement. They'll talk about welcoming, being inclusive. Uh, they, they have the vocabulary. That's a very difficult thing because if you will, if you live long enough, you see how easily words get flipped in their meanings. And before you know it, the word that you cherished and you like love, have you seen love wins? Have you seen that banner somewhere under a rainbow flag? Love wins? Well, I don't want to be unloving. So it goes. 
More is added to the scriptures through alleged what? Visions, dreams, so-called modern scholarship, tradition, the teaching magisterium of the church. All is presented as this is the state of the art of thinking, spirituality, and scholarship. What's wrong with you? Where, why are you? You're so dated. You're so out of it. And, and then there are cultural and I would say civilizational circumstances can, can, can come into this witch's brew to make Christians even more susceptible. I give you an example of this. It goes back to the Civil War. In the Civil War, how many hundreds, thousands of lives were lost in the Civil War? And you know, as a result of that, after the war, and this was also true after World War I, that Christians were drawn into communication with the spirits to communicate with their lost loved ones. Sons. And they were, um, you can remember Mary Todd Lincoln was, uh, she was hooked into this when her, uh, her son Todd, uh, they call him Tad, he died with, was it diphtheria? And it was a deep grief. You've never read any of the story of Abraham Lincoln, Mary Todd Lincoln, but it was just devastating. I mean, if you lose someone near to you, you know, there is that, there is that urge. Oh, I can't speak with them anymore. I can't relate to them anymore. I can't. And if you aren't really tethered well to truth and walking with God and having, have a truth-based, intimate communion with the Lord, you're vulnerable. All right. Well, with that said, let's go to the conclusion, verses 26 through 29. I'll summarize it this way, that Jesus Christ encourages overcomers with the promise of reward. Reward. Get this. The faithful believer is promised the privilege of what? Ruling with Christ. Psalm 2 is quoted here. You see that in your Bibles, don't you? The way in which the type uh, setting is telling you, here's a quote. And in Psalm 2, and this idea of ruling with Christ, true riches in the kingdom, this is huge in the New Testament. I was speaking to someone recently, and I thought he should have known better. He doesn't go to this church. That the New Testament, how much it speaks of rewards, and he Looked at me, kind of puzzled, like, is it that really big a deal? <laughs> well, listen, Luke 16 and 11, authority over cities, 10, 5, Luke 19, 17 through 19. We're called heirs with Christ. What's that mean? Romans 8, 17, 8, 17. reigning with him as we endure in 2 Timothy 2 and 12. There will be this close association with Christ in his millennial reign, an opportunity to serve him in magnificent ways, all to bring glory to him. Here, let me read uh, just a couple of passages to you that uh, should, let me stir up your memory a bit, your imagination by the scriptures. 
Jesus told his disciples, I assure you that when I, the Son of Man, sit upon my glorious throne in the kingdom, you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones governing the 12 tribes of Israel. But many who seem to be important now will be at the least important then. And those who are considered least here will be the greatest then. Matthew 19, 28 through 30. Listen to Luke chapter 22, verses 28 through 30. You have remained true to me in my time of trial. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at the table of that, in that kingdom. You And you will sit on thrones governing the 12 tribes of Israel. If that doesn't sound like reward and possibilities for faithfulness, I don't know what does. Rewards. Do you have a place in your theology for this? Or is it just about that big? But you know, I have some friends, I guess I would say that they just believe we all get a participation trophy. How nice. Just a participation trophy. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's giving encouragement to those who overcome. Not to prove that you're justified by faith. That overcoming moment takes place when you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and you come to Christ. But then, from that moment, you begin to walk in faithfulness to the degree to which you do. And the Lord takes notice. The Lord takes notice and there will be reward. But there's something else here. It's a little more difficult to get around. And that is, he says here, that I will give him the morning star. Seen the morning star lately. Uh, sometimes you get this confluence of, was it Jupiter? It happened the other, was it morning, early evening? I forgot, but you look up in the sky and you say, whoa, what's that? And like a satellite coming in on us. No, the morning star. I think he's saying here that the faithful believers promise joy in the presence of Christ that is coming. And there will be a certain degree of intimacy, greater degrees of intimacy, with the Lord and ruling and reigning with him for some than for others. I don't buy this. We all get a participation trophy. <laughs> now, we all, some will be saved and it will be, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? So as by fire, that is, they lose their rewards, goes up in smoke, gold, wood, hay, and stubble. Others, gold, silver, and precious stone. How's it going with you? Oh, you say, oh, it's so mercenary. We should just serve the Lord for nothing. Uh, That's not what the Lord said. Why reward? He's the one by his grace that enables us to so serve. And we then, as a result of that accrued grace gift, we can bring greater glory and honor to him throughout all eternity. Lord, I want to bring as much glory to you as possible to your name. We have hints at what that may be like. We aren't given the full story, but we're given enough just to tease us in terms of crowns and ruling and such. So, I'll just conclude two statements, two statements and we're through. I think, therefore, overcomers, overcomers, Refuse to be tolerant of spiritual adultery. That's part of love. If I love the Lord, I'm going to keep his commandments. 
And I want to stay joyfully involved in the pursuit of God. I want to pursue obedience to God. And I, Lord, oh, just give me that sustained intensity in seeking you. The pure in heart shall see God. Do you hate, do you hate adultery? Spiritual adultery? Immorality? I, I, I'll be, I have to be careful here. Mixed audience. Women have their own ways in which they can be misled and deceived into immorality, often by romance, either a denied romance or a failed romance or something along that order. I'm generalizing. Men have their open door as God has wired men as the pursuer in relationship, in marriage, in sex. So men, therefore, because of the fall, have particular danger they have to watch out for and that their attention has to be focused on that one to whom they pledge themselves and beware of and stay away from all temptation to the contrary. And I would say, finally, then overcomers keep their ears to the ground of God's word. This keeps your vision clear. Keeps your hopes alive. How are your hopes tonight? How's your vision? You seeing clearly? And let me say this in closing. That lest we become like the church in Thyatira, we don't want to look the other way while something we know about could be going on. Parents can do this. Parents can look the other way. Friends can look the other way. When there are, when there are sins that are being Embrace. I had someone tell me recently, a young man, he was, it was in the context of a, being a bit discouraged by this, how he could talk with friends who professed Christ and could talk about the Bible and were involved in church and then without a blush just talk about going on and sleeping with their girlfriends or getting drunk. <laughs> it just didn't seem, hey, What's the problem here? Well, the Lord takes a very dim view of that. And I pray that our church purifies, us, Lord, make us strong. Let's pray, Lord, purify us. Lord, we thank you are in some ways. But, Lord, our own hearts, oh, protect us, Lord. Lest the evil one get his foot in the door and divide and conquer us and ruin us. Lord, I pray that if there is one here tonight hearing this, either here or online, Lord, where there is some cherished, supposed secret sin, embracing immorality, pornography, attraction to the wrong person in the wrong way, the wrong time, sexual attraction that's misguided, disobedient. Lord, stop them in their tracks. Please, Lord. We will repent. Repent. Thank you, Lord, that you are forgiving God. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.